It is a good morning. We've been really privileged to have the uh, group from Emmaus singing for us last night and this morning, and I know you have been blessed as I have been. We are this morning in Lesson 28 in our study of the book of Hebrews, Making the Most of Moses, or that's the title I'm sticking with so far till I change it somewhere along the line. Moses is, is obviously one of the great men of the Bible. Indisputably, Moses is a great man. Think of this description of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 through 12. No prophet ever again arose in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. He did all the signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, all of his servants and the whole land, and he displayed great power and awesome might in view of all Israel. You remember that Moses was one who was regarded with such great authority that the religious leaders seated themselves, Jesus said, in the seat of Moses. That is, there was no one more authoritative than him, and that's the chair they wanted to take to speak with that kind of authority. In John chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus says that you have set your hope on Moses. He is the one in whom, he says, he's the one who will accuse you, and he is the one on whom you have set your hope. In John chapter 9, the, uh, those who resisted Jesus after healing the man born blind said, we are disciples of Moses. So it's clear from the Bible, Moses is a great man. In chapter 3, in verses 1 through 5 of Hebrews, we see the greatness of Moses as a servant. He was a faithful man, and the writer to the Hebrews acknowledges that element. But he is also a man who is highly regarded, I probably should say too highly regarded, by Judaism. Too much uh, respect, too much regard, and let's just say it frankly, they gilded the lily. Listen to this quote. This comes from from F.F. Bruce, and this is a footnote that is describing how Moses was regarded in extra-biblical literature. Josephus enlarges on Moses' outstanding wisdom and exceptional beauty of stature and describes the victorious expedition which he led against the Ethiopians as an Egyptian commander-in-chief. Philo credits him with proficiency in arithmetic, geometry, poetry, music, philosophy, astrology, and all branches of education. You'd think he was rivaling Solomon. Eupolemus, a Hellenistic Jewish writer, makes him the inventor of the alphabet, which the Phoenicians acquired from him and the Jews from them, or the Greeks from them. Artabanus, another Hellenistic Jew, says that Egypt owed her civilization to him. Others of the same school put Homer and Plato in his debt for whatever of truth and goodness their writings contain. Whew, what a guy. (laughs) You have to say, Judaism thought highly of Moses. And that's why our author feels it is so necessary to address Moses in the Hall of Faith. Now, I want to talk about Moses in four periods of his life, if I can, and I hope I'm correct in this. Some of you may think I'm a little far out on the limb, 
But it seems to me that our text really addresses four periods in in the life of Moses. Uh, First of all, you see that period of infancy. That's the period in which he was protected by his parents, hid, and then, of course, the, the period when he was put in the basket and, uh, and saved by Pharaoh's daughter. But that infancy period is addressed here after his birth. Then there is that period at 40 years when he has become an adult. And Moses makes some decisions about who he will identify with. Then there is the time when Moses left Egypt. I take it that is his second departure, not his first. And that would put him at 80. So he's basically, let's say, zero in age in the first stage. He is 40 at the second stage. He is 80 at the third stage. And I'm going to add a fourth stage, and this is post-Moses' life. And I'm going to call this his legacy. And I'm inclined to see the last verses which deal with the falling of the walls of Jericho and Rahab as really a part of the legacy of Moses and his faith and the great things that God did through him. You don't have to go with me all that far if you don't want, but it seems to me at least that that's a possibility. So let's talk about Moses and his, uh, his, his period during his uh, infancy. It says, oh, oh, I want to make a couple of observations. The four time periods I've already noted, his selectivity. Notice that he picks that period of time, those three months, when his parents hid him. And, and uh, he does not go to the period where he's put in the basket. Now, the commentators love to wax eloquent on the basket. And, and all I can say is, you got to read Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, under inspiration, Stephen says, And when they exposed him, marginal note, put him out to die. It seems to me that that event is not the high point. I'll come back to that. It's not the high point of his parents' faith. The high point of his parents' faith is when they defied the order to kill that child and hid him. And then I will call that sort of class B faith that comes after that. So there is a selectivity in terms of what items the author picks, not only in reference to his early age, but in reference to every part of Moses' life. There's a lot of places you could go for an illustration of faith. But it seems to me he has picked particular points at particular periods of time in his life to call our attention to. He indicates both parents, notice the writer of the Hebrews says, his parents, he was hidden by his parents in this in those early three months. In Exodus, it says his mother hid him. In uh, uh, Acts chapter 7, it says he was brought up in his father's home. And here it says his parents did. Now, I think the bottom line is, whenever you're going to defy Pharaoh... You're, the husband's going to be a piece of that. But it seems to me that the initiation, at least so far as Exodus 2 is concerned, that the initiation of that uh, seems to be on the part of his mother. Now, I may be pressing hard here, but it says that Moses was hidden. And in, in, in the translation that I have, it says, by faith when Moses was born, his parents hid him. Now, that's not bad, but it seems to me that it misses maybe what may be a significant point. And that is, 
Somehow, I don't think the emphasis is supposed to be entirely on Moses, him, uh, Moses' parents, but rather on him. It is the fact that he was hidden. They didn't actively hide him so far as the author's concerned. They did. But his point is he was hidden. It was faith that saved Moses. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. By faith, he was hidden. And in that hiding, he was spared by faith. So I call this incident a class A faith as opposed to class B. Class A faith, the order is every child that's born, you throw them into the river, they drown, the crocodiles eat them. Class B faith is when you're supposed to put them in the river and they do, but they waterproof the the little uh, basket and they send him afloat and they have the daughter watching to see what would happen. And I really don't want to gild the lily and make that too great of an incident, but it seems to me it's not on the same level as what you see when they hide him for those three months. I look at my life and I say, there are, there, I hope there are a few instances in which I evidence class A faith, but I gotta tell you, my, my life is full of class B stuff, you know, where yes, it's faith, but you sort of hedge your bets a little bit. And, and that's the way. And again, I'm going back to Acts chapter 7. They put them out to die. That's what the text says. And therefore, you have to take that into account to some degree. Why was Moses hidden? The text says because he was beautiful. This is really interesting. And I don't know what to make of it. But, but those of you who are uh, uh, the scholar types... When you look at A.T. Robertson, he says that the word that is used for beautiful, its origin means of the city, of the city. Now, I almost titled this message City Slickers, <laughs> and, and, and that would be Moses. And the, and the sense is of the city means, if, you, if you're thinking about that in contemporary terms, you know, the city boys are the more sophisticated ones, the country boys are the hicks, so they say. And, and I'm a country boy, by the way. Uh, and, and so he was of the city. That is, he was sophisticated. He was skilled and all of that. When you look again at, at, at Acts, it says he was beautiful to the Lord. And you'll notice, by the way, that it says for the Hebrew text, he was good. Now, I've said this before, but I do not personally think that the parents are motivated by the fact that this is such a beautiful baby, they just can't chunk him in the river. That just doesn't, to me, that just doesn't look like faith. Oh, I'd throw, if he were ugly, away he'd go. This kid is beautiful. I can't do that, Mama says. Now, I think they saw, remember, faith is seeing into the future. Faith is seeing what is unseen. I think they saw something in this child that was unique. By the way, don't you think the parents of Jesus felt the same way? Something about that child was unique. There was something that was going to happen. And so they, sensing that God had something for that child, spared him in defiance of Pharaoh's decree. They were not afraid, the text tells us, of the king's edict. I take it from this, that the author is saying to us, faith is really the foundation for Moses' beginnings in life. So I understand them to go back to Moses' birth, 
his, his preservation by his parents through their faith and all the way through his life and then even looking beyond his life to the after effects and saying, if you want to look at Moses, it isn't one incident of faith, it is faith all the way through it. Even faith that kept him alive to do the job that God had called him to do. So I come to the next stage of, of uh, Moses' ministry, and I call this Moses' mindset at maturity. Now, it is clear from the text that he was nearly 40. It, it, to me, it's clear from the text he was almost 40. So you've got 0, 40, and then he'll leave when he's 40 years in the wilderness. He'll leave with the Israelites at the age of 80. This is the 40 point, and I think you have to say he's, he's mature, right? He's an adult now. And this is the point at which the text says that he makes uh, some serious decisions. Now, when I read in Acts chapter 7, and, and, and I'm looking at the same incident, it seems to me that what Moses cho- chose to set aside, what he decided that he would not have, is something he got a good taste of. That is, Moses knew what it would mean for him to forsake the pleasures of sin by being known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Can you imagine? I wish sometimes. Have you ever been in a spot where you were you needed something badly and you knew somebody uh, that was important and you could just drop their name and all of a sudden things started happening in the right way? To be the son of Pharaoh's daughter was the ultimate trump card. I mean, can you imagine getting pulled over for speeding in your chariot? You're doing 12 miles an hour in an 8 mile per hour zone. And all you do is just pull out that, that, that daughter of Pharaoh card. You say, oh, I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. They say, oh, well, drive safely. See you next, you know, some other time. But they leave you alone. He, it says, was a man who was mighty in word and deed. He had had 40 years of experiencing what Egypt had to offer. When he made his decision to identify with a slave, enslaved people and to suffer adversity with them in order to help them, he knew what that meant. I'm saying that is a well-advised decision. He knows what the good life looks like and he has chosen purposely at this late point in his life. Now, As I understand the sequence of events, he comes to that mental point in his life where he says, I am an Israelite. God has called me in some way to become a deliverer for his people, and I'm going to identify with them. It was a great decision. You remember, though, that it resulted in him killing an Egyptian and and now becoming a national enemy number one and having to flee. Sometimes our faith uh, may lead us to erroneous conclusions. And it seems to me that that's what happened with Moses. As I've said all the way through this section in Hebrews 11, these people who are people of faith are flawed people. Their faith, if you want to look into and look under the surface of any one of these lives, you will see people who are not perfect. The point isn't that they're perfect. The point is Christ is perfect. And their, their trust and faith is in him, although they may 
fail at, at points along the line. So it's not until after Moses spends his 40 years out in the wilderness that he finally comes back at 80 and will do his, uh, his uh, shepherding of the Israelites. So he chooses long-term benefits over short-term rewards. That is a really tough one to do. And I'll tell you, given our economy, that's not the message that, that our government wants to preach now. It's charge it up. Live for the future. You owe it to yourself now. We live in a society that wants everything now and forget about later. In fact, they want everything now because they're not sure about later. But he forsakes what is known and experienced for what he sees from a distance. And that seems to me to teach the principle that faith requires self-sacrifice and suffering for future glory. And Moses is surely a picture of that. Now, faith in Moses at the Exodus, verses 27 through 29. When it says that Moses fled and he was not afraid of Pharaoh, it seems to me you have to say that's at 80. Yes, he fled at 40. And he was afraid at 40. He fled because he was afraid of Pharaoh. Can't be that time. So when he is leaving Egypt, he is leaving Egypt with the Israelites and he is not afraid of Pharaoh. Now, God has told Moses in Exodus 14, that they were in effect to look like they were wandering around. And he said to Moses, it's going to look to Pharaoh like you're lost in the desert. He's coming out after you. But I'm going to give you the victory. So he knew Pharaoh was coming. And by the way, he had nine plagues before the tenth one. And Pharaoh changed his mind every time. When he left Egypt, he knew he was going to have company. And he did. But the point is, he says, he did not fear Pharaoh. Same words that we see describing the parents who have hidden him, not fearing Pharaoh. Moses persevered, seeing him who is unseen. Why? Now, this really takes me back to Exodus 33. Moses is up on the mountain. God's given him the law, remember, and then they make the, the golden calf and whatever, and, and, and God threatens to wipe out the entire bunch of these Israelites and start a new nation through him. And after God promises Moses that he will go with his people up, up to the, the promised land, not just send his angel, but personally be with him, that's where Moses says, let me see thy glory. What this tells me is that his desire to see God, his desire to draw near, is a lifelong desire. And it was especially at this point that he wanted to see more of God. One of the most trying, difficult moments of his life. But it seems to me that helps explain. He is a man who wanted to see God who is unseen. He saw him by faith, but he wanted to see more of him, as indeed he did. So Moses kept the Passover, we are told, and he sprinkles the blood, very much like the priests would later do, and of course, very much, in a sense, as a prototype, like our Lord Jesus would sprinkle his blood, so to speak, for the redemption of lost sinners. He kept the Passover. I take it that means the first Passover, the one that spared those, the, uh, the, uh, the death angel, from taking the lives of, of the Israelites, as the text indicates. 
So, it says that he kept the Passover and he led the Israelites through the Red Sea to salvation. Following Moses, by doing what he said with regard to the Passover uh, sacrifice, by following him through the Red Sea led to salvation for the Israelites and opposing Moses led to destruction for the armies of the Israelites. And uh, so now let's look at uh, at the legacy of that in verses 30 and 31. Here's where you may get off my train, and, and that's okay, but it seems to me that this is all really about Moses, that this whole section, including verses 30 and 31. One of the commentaries that I have a lot of respect for, and I won't name it right now, but one of the commentaries, it, it's uh, it has this lengthy section on Joshua, and, 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 and about Joshua as a man of faith and, and all of that. And I have to say to you folks, he doesn't even name him, does he? He doesn't say by faith Joshua led the people around uh, the, the walls and the walls fell in. He says by faith the walls fell in. Now I think several things are, are, are important in this. One, it really isn't the man. That's the whole point. It isn't the man, it's faith in God that accomplishes these great things. And so in that sense, no wonder he leaves Joshua out. If we want to give him too much credit, he just leaves him off. But I think the other part of it is that the Israelites are willing to do what they do because they have seen the the God of Israel at work in their lives through a man of faith. In other words... Moses is not just a personal man of faith. Moses is a leader of faith. So they have followed him through the Red Sea. They obeyed him about the offering of the sacrifice. They went to battle uh, with the enemy in following him. And in every one of those instances, they saw God give the victory. Can you imagine what it must have felt like? To, to, to be marching around. Remember now, the land had giants. So here you are marching around Jericho, this fortified city. And can't you imagine somebody said to his sidekick, you know, what are we doing? You know, we're not armed to the teeth. What would we do if they opened the gates? It, it, it looked, you know, it looked so bad. But if you understand, they have learned to walk by faith by following Moses. Then it seems to me that some of this is the legacy of Moses. And and I guess here's what I'm trying to say. When you look at what his parents are doing, it seems to me that what you see is they acted in faith and that was a legacy for Moses. It didn't guarantee in every instance in the Old Testament or the New that godly people would have godly children. But Faith is a legacy and it impacts others. And now Moses is dead and gone. But Israel is still moving ahead. And they are moving ahead because they have seen God at work through faith. And I'm saying I believe that's a part of the legacy of Moses. Verse 30. Now, the second thing you notice is in verse 31. Rahab welcomed the Israelite spies. Notice what it doesn't say. It does not say, by faith, Rahab lied. She did, by the way. She did. (laughs) And that's what I've been trying to tell you. There's class A faith and class B faith. And that's probably a C-minus kind of faith. But 
She was a pagan. She was a pagan. What she did know is that God was with Israel. And when you look at her words in, 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 in Joshua chapter 2, and she says to those spies, here is why I am welcoming you. Here is why I am giving you sanctuary. She's saying, I know, as all of these people, all of my people know, we recognize God is with you. And what she speaks of as bringing fear to their hearts is what God has done through Moses. By and large, if you look at those victories, you look at what's happened, it says, God brought you through the sea, God gave you victory over the enemies. He's talking about things that happened under Moses' administration, if you would. So I'm suggesting to you, not that, that, uh, that Rahab wasn't a woman who had faith, she was. Not that uh, uh, Joshua was not a man of faith, he was. But I'm saying to you, I believe that in this text, our author is trying to suggest that it is Moses' faith that impacts others in a positive way and leaves a kind of legacy of faith. So let's talk about Moses and Jesus, can we? Hebrews is not a stranger to Moses. If you think back to, uh, to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, you see this whole scenario which talks about Moses being a faithful man, and it's a faithful man as a servant. But he says, Jesus is faithful as the Son. So Moses is being given honor, if you would, honor as a man of faith, but it is very clear that Moses doesn't hold a candle to the Son. Moses is a great man, but Moses isn't anything compared to Jesus. And remember, Hebrews keeps telling us what Jesus has done in the New Covenant, what he has done at Calvary, the atonement he has brought about. Moses, in the sprinkling of that blood, is foreshadowing what will happen, but it is Jesus who does it. So we know about Moses from earlier in the book of Hebrews, and he is a faithful man, but Jesus is obviously superior to him. And Moses identified himself with Israel and with Jesus. Isn't that the decision he made at 40? Moses decided to identify himself with the people of God and to come to their aid, to visit them in the sense of being their helper, their deliverer. Now, he got a little confused about that. It took him 40 years to get the right, the right message. But in the end, he was the one who God had brought to bring them that physical deliverance. It's also clear in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 that Moses didn't get them to rest. Is that not right? That generation didn't get to rest because Moses isn't the way you get to rest. Jesus is. Great man, but Jesus is greater. So there is this identification with the Israelites and there is the identification, as our text makes clear, with Jesus and his sufferings. So I take it that in that process, I really don't know exactly all that Moses understood, but I think sometimes these Old Testament characters understood more than we think they did. And all I you know, just keep reminding you, Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He knew something. We're not told exactly what it was. But in his identification with Christ, in his willingness to embrace suffering for the people of God and their deliverance, he identifies himself with the afflictions of Christ. 
And that, of course, is a great act of faith on his part. He is a prototype of Jesus. Think about it this way. The similarities between Moses and Jesus that are just set out there. But when you read the book of Hebrews, remember it says in, in, in chapter 3 and verse 5 that Moses was set out and he was a foreshadowing of the things which would be spoken. In other words, Moses was a great man and he was a prototype, like the tabernacle was, like other things were. It was a prototype of those greater things that were yet to come. So think about this. Moses was, from our text, was preserved in his infancy. Was he not? Moses was preserved in his infancy. Let me see now. Wasn't Jesus preserved in his infancy? And by the way, Moses came out of Egypt. So did Jesus. Uh, It seems to me those things may not be uh, accidental. He chose to identify with Israel. The whole point that the author makes early in chapter 2 of Hebrews is... Our Lord Jesus chose to identify with men, and that's what the incarnation is about. He chose to identify with God's people to bring about salvation. And as a result, he led many to salvation. I'm saying to you, it is not a surprise to me that the writer would speak of Moses in such a way that we begin to get the shadow feeling. He prototypes, in a way, the coming and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are many things. You see the, 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 like, the likeness of Jesus in, uh, to Moses, by the way, in passages like Deuteronomy 18, 18, where Moses says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And then when you get to Luke and you see the story of the transfiguration in chapter 9, here is Moses and Elijah who appears with Jesus in his transfiguration. And they talk about Jesus, what? Exodus. Now you've got to look a little harder in the text, but it's there. They talk about Jesus' exodus. Isn't it interesting that Moses would talk with Jesus about an exodus that he was to accomplish? That parallel between them. Okay, for the readers of that day, what does it say? Notice, Moses was the man who was most highly regarded in Judaism for doing what? Giving the law. Is that not right? Most highly regarded within Judaism for giving the law. Do you notice the law is never mentioned? Law is never mentioned. In this whole scenario, we look at these points. What is emphasized is not Moses the lawgiver, but Moses the man of faith. Because Moses, like every other Old Testament saint, was saved by faith, not by law keeping and not by law giving. He is A great man of faith. Moses led others from bondage to freedom. Isn't it amazing that people would want to return to Moses and they're really returning to bondage? When in the Old Testament, when people wanted to return to the bondage of Egypt, they had to kill Moses to do it. They wanted to kill him and then go back to Egypt. It is he who led them out of Egypt. And I think what the author is saying is, if you guys are thinking about going back to Judaism and going back to Moses, you're not going the way he's going. He's going that away. You're going that away. Moses is a man of faith. And we should follow him in that way. Look to Moses and go forward by faith. Don't go back. The implications for us. 
To follow Moses is to draw near to God. To reject Moses is to draw back from God. You see that. Those who followed Moses found deliverance. Those who opposed Moses found death. So if we're going to be followers of Moses, then we ought to be those who follow him in drawing near to God. And his heart, Exodus 33, was to draw near. Let me see thy glory. That was Moses' heart, and it should be ours. To follow Moses is to live by faith. To follow Moses is to live in light of future rewards. To follow Moses is to live sacrificing certain present pleasures for those future rewards. And it is to identify with the people of God. Isn't that what chapter 10 was about? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. See, we've got some choices to make. We've got some questions to ask, if you would. And that's like, where is home? Where is home? Home wasn't Egypt for Moses. Egypt was home for some Israelites because they kept wanting to go back. Where is home? Who are my people? That's one of the questions we have to ask. Who are we going to identify ourselves with? It will have worlds of implications. Are we going to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Well, we might. But what will that get us? He says the treasures that are ahead outweigh the treasures of Egypt. Do you understand what that means? Do you know how rich Egypt was? How powerful? What that meant? He turned his back on all that the world had to offer. Because he understood to follow God was to have greater riches. What will my legacy be? See, in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, if I had thought this way, if I had acted this way, if in effect I had thrown down my, the towel, thrown in the towel and, and said, I'm a fooey. Uh, my life, I got more suffering. The, the wicked are prospering. I'm just going to give it all up. He says, if I had done this, I would have betrayed this generation of your people. The reality is, our actions have an implication for other people. Our following Christ can be a legacy to other people. That's why it says that Abel still speaks. Verse 4 of chapter 11. It's why he says that those people who died still seek, still alive. But they have something for us. They teach something to us. Our faith has a legacy. Well, number three, I actually got myself out of order, but I'm going to end this way. Faith at the turning points of life. I, at least to me, what I see is that there are these critical points in Moses' life. Now, the first point obviously isn't his decision, but it's a decision made for him. At 40, he makes the most deci- important decision of all. Who will I identify with? Where is my faith? At 80, he makes decisions that have long-term implications. And what I would suggest is, do we not all find ourselves... As, as believers, assuming that we have trusted in Jesus Christ. If we have trusted in him, do we not go through different chapters of our lives? I mean, we talk about things like the midlife crisis and, and you know, whatever. You can, you can name those, those sort of turning points in life. 
But what I would suggest to you is, while we have a point of initial faith, uh, if, if we're believers, while we have a point at which we turn in faith to Christ, and that is a critical point, there will be points in our lives where we need to reaffirm that commitment. And it seems to me that that's what you see with Moses. At 40, he makes a huge commitment. At 80, he makes another commitment. And it seems like in Hebrews, because the emphasis is on perseverance, when he says, all these died in faith without receiving the promise, they all finished well, did they not? Everyone that he's talking about must have finished well. Now, old Samson, (laughs) I think he only did well when he finished. But they finished well. That's his point. If we are people of faith, then we will persevere. We will persevere and that faith will be evident at this point in our life. It will be evident at points in our life where we suffer losses or jobs or find economic difficulty. He is going to be there at every point, but there are places in our lives where we need to reaffirm that faith and where that faith becomes evident to other people and becomes our legacy. So where are we in our chapters of faith? Do we manifest that kind of faith that trusts in God, that looks to the future reward, that sees the future as greater than anything this world has to offer to us? I think I ought to say this too. It's clear to me in this text that there is civil disobedience. Now, I'm not going to press that beyond its limits. But is it not true they defied Pharaoh? They defied Pharaoh. When it came to the taking of human life, I might add, when it came to the taking of human life, they defied Pharaoh. There's a whole lot of taking of human life going on today. And I think we've come to just kind of get complacent about that. Moses defied Pharaoh when he left Egypt. We've lived in a land where the laws have protected Christians and even reflected our faith. That may not continue. And we may be placed in positions where we have to say, government says this, God says that. And that's the point at which we're going to find where our faith is. Whether it's in him or whether it's in that supposed security and protection that government says it affords us. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that there is anyone here this morning that has not personally trusted in the Lord Jesus. That they would understand that even these Old Testament saints were not saved by trying to keep the law, not saved by trying to do better. They were saved because they understood they were sinners and they needed a Savior. They looked forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And I pray if there is any here who has never trusted in him, that you would open their hearts to receive that gift of his sacrifice on their behalf for the forgiveness of their sins. Father, for those of us who are believers, may we be known for our faith, not just our initial faith, but our faith in all of those difficult points in life where our faith will be put to the test. May there be a legacy that that we leave behind that people will be encouraged because of the kinds of lives that we have led. And may they focus not on us, but on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen.